Good morning. It is good to see everyone here today. We're thankful for your presence. I know we have a number of visitors with us today. I have seen a lot of orange that people are wearing today. And being from um, South Carolina, I'm assuming that you're Clemson fans, and that's what you're celebrating <laughs> this morning. We are going to have questions and answers tonight, and I have a lot of questions that have been turned in. In fact, I have noticed that every time that uh, it comes out in the bulletin that we're going to have Q&A, people start emailing me questions. So I probably have 30 questions right now, and I can cover about 10 per session, but keep them coming. I'm thankful that you are interested in that. All right, there we go. It was a national tragedy, the likes of which people in my generation had never seen. In fact, people in the generation prior to me had probably never seen anything like this, and I certainly hope the generation after me will not see it either. I remember it very well. I was on my way to an area preacher's meeting in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Sherry called me on my cell phone, and she told me what had just happened. We were very confused. In fact, the whole country was confused at that time. We were trying to figure out what was going on, because terrorists had hijacked several passenger planes and they had flown them into the Twin Towers. Almost 3,000 people died that day. President Bush came on the television and he said that this was a tragedy that would not go unpunished, that he would hunt down the terrorists and he would make sure they were dealt with heavily. But in the midst of all of this, there was something that happened on the internet that you may not be aware of. There was a name that was searched, maybe more than just about any other name, and that name was Nostradamus. Nostradamus supposedly had predicted what was going to happen that day. Supposedly, Nostradamus showed hundreds of years before what had happened about the planes being hijacked and flying into the Twin Towers and one of his quatrains, that is a four-line segment for which he was famous, supposedly Nostradamus predicted exactly what was going to happen. Now, he did not mention airplanes, but he mentions eagles and he mentions fly, uh, falling towers. And, and so his prediction, people said, was very much descriptive of what happened on 9-11. But when it was researched, it was discovered that Nostradamus had actually not predicted anything of the sort. In fact, the quatrain that allegedly predicted this happening had actually been pieced together by various parts of his writing and had not come from the same place. It was not a prediction at all. But it showed us something that people understood very well, and that is if someone could accurately predict the future and get it right all the time, that is something that is superhuman. That is something that is beyond people's ability to do. In fact, it is divine. If there was ever a person or a book or a writing that could accurately predict the future hundreds of years in advance or, or any period in advance and be right in every minute detail 100% of the time, then that writing or that person would be speaking for God. Is there such a book? You know, people thought that Nostradamus was the man, but he was not. 
But we understand that such ability would be special. Such ability would be superhuman. Is there a book that accurately predicts the future and 100% of the time gets it right in every detail? And the answer is there is. That book is the Bible. You may very well know that the Bible is filled with prophecies that were spoken hundreds of years before they ever took place. The fact that the Bible gives us these prophecies, and the Bible also gives us um, criteria for judging prophecies. In fact, I want you to notice this. This is from Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. This is how you can judge a prophet or a prophecy. When the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, this is pretty simple to understand. Jeremiah said, if a prophet makes a statement, and that statement comes true, and he's always right, then you know that he's a prophet from God. Now, let me ask you this question. How many times would a prophet have to be wrong to be proven that he's not from God? If a prophet was right, let's say 50% of the time, would that be enough? You say, well, no, that's not enough. Obviously, that would not prove it was from God. What if a prophet was right 60% of the time or 70%? What if a prophet was right 95% of the time? You say, no, Don, that wouldn't cut it because those percentages just aren't enough to be accurate because if God wrote a book, God is all-knowing. God would never, ever make a mistake. He would never be wrong. He would always accurately predict the future every single time. Now, there is another criteria that is given about a prophet or writing, whether it comes from God. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22. This is uh, written by Moses. Moses said, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Again, this is pretty easy to understand. Jeremiah says, if a prophet says something and it comes to pass all the time, he's always right, then he's a prophet coming from God. Moses said, if a prophet says something and it doesn't happen, then you know he's a false prophet. You know that he is not from God. So our question this morning is this, does the Bible contain accurate, predictive prophecy? That is, does the Bible predict things before they happen, and is it accurate? That's the question that we're going to look at through this lesson today. And the place that we're going to focus initially is a prophecy that was laid down by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote concerning the ancient city of Tyre, not T-I-R-E, but T-Y-R-E, and we're going to read several elements from this prophecy. All right, Ezekiel's prophecy, I'm going to begin in Ezekiel chapter 26, and we're going to start reading in verse number 3. Ezekiel said, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. Who was responsible for the destruction of Tyre? In about the year 1200 B.C., the city of Tyre was a very prosperous city, it was an elegant city. It was one of the richest cities in all of the world. And this was largely because it was located in a perfect position 
on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, so it was a port city. People would come to Tyre and they would trade and it made that city very wealthy. In fact, you might remember reading about Tyre in the Old Testament in the days of David and Solomon because when Solomon was building the temple, he reached out to the city of Tyre and specifically to the king of Tyre. His name was Hiram. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent cedars to Solomon that he used in the construction of the temple in about 1000 B.C. And so this is a rich city, but along with its prosperity, the city of Tyre became very arrogant. They were very full of themselves. They were very selfish. In fact, this attitude that they had was, we only are going to look out for ourselves. And they would oftentimes align themselves with whatever political power was in control, and they would pay that political power for the privilege of trading, and so they just got wealthier and wealthier. And the nation of Israel, God's people, whenever things were not going well for them, Tyre would kind of kick them when they were down. They wouldn't help them. They were, uh, in essence, enemies of God's people. And so because of this arrogant attitude, because of the mistreatment of his people, and because of idolatry, God sends the prophet Ezekiel to the city of Tyre in the year 592 B.C., to prophesy against this city and to tell them that they're going to be destroyed. Well, along with this prophecy, when we look at Ezekiel 26, verses 7 and 8, we're going to read the following. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he will slay you with the sword, your daughter, villages in the field. He will heap up a siege mound against you. Now listen to this, Ezekiel predicted that many nations were going to come against the city of, of Tyre and they're going to knock down your walls. And he says specifically, one of them that's going to come against you is Nebuchadnezzar. Now if we go back and we look at secular history, we will see that in about the year 586, a king named Nebuchadnezzar did come up against the city of Tyre. And he besieged this city for about 13 years. Now, you would think that in 13 years, Nebuchadnezzar could have captured and defeated this city. And he thought that too. But anyway, 13 years, he is attacking this city. Well, in about 572 BC, Nebuchadnezzar finally breaks down the walls. He destroys the villages around Tyre, just as Ezekiel had predicted. But when the walls came down and, he, and um, he gets into the city, Nebuchadnezzar has a problem. He has a surprise because the inhabitants of the city of Tyre, they had a very special arrangement because there was the mainland city of Tyre that's on the coast and about three quarters of a mile out in the water, there was an island city of Tyre. Well, during the siege on that city, for 13 years, the citizens of Tyre were taking ships back and forth from the coast to the island. And so they moved all of their gold and all of their food and all of their supplies out to the island city. And so when Nebuchadnezzar finally barged through the walls into the mainland city, there was nothing left for him because all of the citizens had moved out. And so for all of his work that he'd put into the city of Tyre, he got nothing. Subsequently, when Nebuchadnezzar was gone and his armies were out of the way, the citizens of Tyre, 
they moved back into the city, and they put the walls back up, and the city once again became lucrative until about the year 332 B.C. In 332 B.C., a young man appeared on the scene, the likes of which history had never recorded until that time. His name was Alexander, and they called him the Great. Alexander the Great is said to have conquered the whole known world at that time, with a very few exceptions. In fact, I read that at about the age of 30 to 33, Alexander the Great bowed his head and he wept because he said there's no more world to conquer. Well, Alexander the Great comes to the city of Tyre in 332 B.C. Now, mind you, this is about 250 years after the prediction by Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel chapter 26, we get to about verse 12. We're going to see a further prediction from Ezekiel. This is 250 years before Alexander. Ezekiel says this. Ezekiel 26, 12, he says, They will plunder your riches. They will pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones and your timber and your soil. Listen to this part. In the midst of the water. Now, why is this prophecy interesting? Because normally in ancient times, when they would finally break through the walls of the city and they would push it down and all of the stones were there, what they would do, the uh, victor would then take control of the city, they would take the possessions, and then they would use that timber that was knocked down, and they would use those stones that were knocked down, and they would use it to rebuild the city and to rebuild the walls. And so when Ezekiel prophesied that the remnants of the city would be thrown into the sea, that was very atypical. This would have been a very unusual thing to think that an entire city and all the supplies would be thrown into the sea. And when Ezekiel predicted this, Tyre is at its pinnacle. They are a wealthy city. To think that that city would be scraped clean and thrown into the, into the sea, that was very bizarre. But when Alexander the Great came unto the sea and he besieged the city of Tyre just exactly like Nebuchadnezzar had done, exactly like Ezekiel had predicted, it didn't take Alexander the Great 13 years like it took Nebuchadnezzar. It took Alexander the Great seven months and he breaks through the walls. Well, the citizens of Tyre had learned something from history, and they had done the same thing. They had moved out to their island city. They moved all their equipment. They moved their supplies and their arms to the island city. Well, when Alexander the Great comes into the city and no one is left, what do you think he did? You think he said, well, you know, better luck next time. I guess they licked me. No, he was Alexander the Great for a reason. He was a world conqueror for a reason. And so he determined a plan by which they were going to get to the island city and they were going to destroy the inhabitants of Tyre. And so his plan was this. We're going to take the building supplies from the mainland city, all the rocks and the dirt and the lumber, and we're going to start throwing it into the Mediterranean Sea, and we're going to use that to build a land bridge out to the island of Tyre. And so he does that, and he scrapes clean the mainland city, dumping it into the Mediterranean Sea, exactly like Ezekiel said was going to happen 
250 years before this. Ezekiel also predicted that the city would never be rebuilt, that it would never gain its former glory, and that's exactly what secular history says has happened. Now, this is a predictive prophecy that came true 250 years after Ezekiel had written it down in the pages of Old Testament Scripture. Now, I could give you another example. We could talk about the city of Babylon and how Jeremiah and Isaiah predicted exactly what was going to happen there hundreds of years before it actually happened. In fact, we could give lots of examples like this, but I want to spend the rest of our time in this lesson focusing on a specific type of prophecy. I want to talk about something called messianic prophecy. In the word messianic, you see the word messiah. In the Old Testament, the Jews were waiting for Jesus to come. He was their rescuer. He was their messiah. And messianic prophecy, that refers to prophecies pointing to the messiah, to Jesus. And the Old Testament is filled with messianic prophecies. Not only do they tell of the coming of the messiah, but they tell it in minute detail. They tell how the Messiah is going to be born. They tell where he's going to be born, how he's going to die. They tell where he's going to be buried, what's going to happen during his life. As a matter of fact, there are approximately 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. You're probably familiar with several of them. In Isaiah, we are told in Isaiah 7.14 that the Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, what's interesting about that is in Micah's prophecy, at the time that he writes it, there were actually two Bethlehems. There was a northern Bethlehem and there was a southern Bethlehem. But Micah predicted that the Messiah would be born in the lower, in the southern Bethlehem, the one known as Bethlehem Ephrathah. He's very specific about that. Just like, you know, there'll be cities today by the same name. I had somebody one day, I told them that I was originally from Charleston. And they said, oh, I've been to Virginia. And I said, not Virginia. I'm not from Virginia, West Virginia. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. No offense to people from West Virginia, but um, I thought when I think of Charleston, I think South Carolina. They think West Virginia. Well, they're two different cities, but they've got the same name. And so when this prophecy is made by Micah, he's very specific, and he says it's going to be Bethlehem, but it's going to be the southern one. There are over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Zechariah predicted the amount for which Jesus would be betrayed. He also predicted about the potter's field, that it would be purchased for 30 pieces of silver for that amount of money. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, you've got a long description of Jesus and the Messiah. It says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, Jesus, shall grow up before him like a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. We shall see him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. That is, apparently Jesus wasn't a strikingly handsome figure, not a particularly good-looking individual, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised for our sins. In fact, the entire chapter of Isaiah, chapter 53, explains that the Messiah would take on the sins of the world, that he would be punished for the wicked, that his grave would be with the rich, and all of these things that were prophesied is exactly what history says happened in the New Testament with Jesus. But I want to focus for the next few minutes on one specific messianic prophecy. When you think about the crucifixion of Jesus, there are seven statements that Jesus made on the cross, and you probably remember several of them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I thirst, it is finished. But there is one that is of the utmost interest with regard to our present discussion. It's a statement that Jesus made, and it's recorded in a foreign language. He said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered why Jesus made that statement? Some people have suggested that Jesus became a scapegoat for sin on our behalf, and because God is holy, He cannot look upon sin, and Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. Therefore, God the Father had to turn away His face from Jesus while He was on the cross, and so Jesus said, Why have you forsaken me? That is a, a possible explanation for that. But here's something I want you to consider. The Old Testament book of Psalms... Much of Psalms was written by David. In fact, 60 or more of the Psalms were written by David. And they're written about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before the time of Christ. As a matter of fact, there is a, a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, keep this in mind. The Old Testament is mostly written in Hebrew. But there is a version of the Old Testament that was written in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. A man by the name of Ptolemy Philadelphus decided that he wanted the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew. He wanted them in Greek. So about 250 B.C., he had the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. 250 years before the time of Jesus, there is a Greek New Testament called the Septuagint. So what that means, why I'm making this point is... Everything in the Old Testament had to have been written down by at least 250 years prior to the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, and that includes Psalm 22. Now, very quickly, Psalm 22, at least 250 years before Jesus was written. This particular psalm, from what I understand, is one that was used to quiet the synagogue. You know how it is before worship that, uh, in fact, this happened here today. Everybody's talking and they're out in the foyer and, and people are fellowshipping and it's kind of hard to get people to settle down. And so the song leader will come up front and he'll start leading a song and then everyone hears it and within a, uh, a minute or so everyone settles down for worship. And maybe it's a, a common song. Sometimes churches will start with a common love. Well... They did this very sort of thing in the synagogue worship in the first century. And I have heard that Psalm 22 is one of the songs, a psalm is a song, Psalm 22 is one of the songs that they typically sang 
in the assembly to get things started. And so it was a very well-known psalm. Listen to this. Psalm 22 starts with this statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? Now, I want you to imagine this if you can. Imagine being a Jew in the first century. And imagine you are standing there when they are crucifying Jesus. And you are watching this. And you're wondering, you know, he claimed to be the Messiah. You see him dying on the cross. And you're thinking to yourself, this man can't really be the Christ. He can't really be the Messiah. Because if he were, he would come down from the cross. He wouldn't be dying on a, a cursed tree. If he were the Christ, he would come down from that tree and prove he's the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. But as you're thinking that, you hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately what comes to your mind is Psalm 22. You know it, you sing it. Your family's been singing this psalm for a thousand years. Your great, 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 great grandfather sang this song. Your parents knew this song. They taught this psalm. It's a very popular psalm in your community. Everybody knew it. Like, Jesus loves me. My kids sang Jesus loves me. I sang it. My family before me sang it. It is something that everybody knows. Psalm 22, everybody knew it. As you hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your mind goes to that psalm, and you start recalling the words of Psalm 22, and you recall that it says, and those who see me laugh me to scorn, and they shoot out the lip, and they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him now since he delights in him. And as you're remembering Psalm 22, you look around at the crowd surrounding Jesus, and you hear the Jewish leaders saying, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, let Him deliver you. Almost exactly word for word what the psalm says. If He's the Christ, let Him come down. Why is God not delivering Him? But that's not where you stop. You recall the words of Psalm 22, and those words come to your mind as clearly and as vividly as if you were reading them straight from the page, and you're standing here seeing it unfold. And in your mind, you hear the words, For dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hand and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And as you're standing there, you see the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for Jesus' clothes. And you realize that this prophecy, Psalm 22, had been made a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, and you were seeing it. Friends, is there predictive prophecy in the Bible that proves that the Bible is the divine Word of God? In truth, the Bible is overflowing with this type of evidence. I haven't counted this myself, but one man claims to have counted how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament that have to do with the Messiah. He says that there are 333 prophecies about the Messiah, Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. A man by the name of Peter Stoner several years ago wrote a book. Peter Stoner was a mathematician. 
And he took eight of the prophecies about Jesus, not all 333, just eight of them, and he did some mathematical calculations. He made this observation. He said the chances of all eight of these prophecies written long ago falling on one particular individual, the chances of that happening are 10 to the 17th power. That's not 1 in 100. It's not 1 in 10,000. That is 1 to 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know how to pronounce that number. And he illustrated it this way. He said, if you were to take the state of Texas and you were to stack silver dollars all the way, all the way around the border of the state, and he said, you stack them two feet high, and then you took a blind man, or you took a man and blindfolded him so he couldn't see, and you let him walk into the state of Texas, and you told him, I have marked one of these silver dollars with some, uh, a red marker. And you just walk in any direction, walk as far as you want, walk one foot, walk one mile, walk uh, 10,000 uh, footsteps. Whenever you get ready, you just reach down into, the, into those coins and you grab one and you pull it out. He said the chances that you would get the one with the red mark on it is about one and to a 10 to the 17th power. About the same number. The chances he'd get the right one are about the same as these eight prophecies of long ago falling on one particular man. There's 333 of them. He was only dealing with eight. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said, if the word of a prophet comes to pass, let it be known that that prophet is speaking for God. Friends, the words of the Bible have come to pass. Now, what should that suggest to us? It suggests to us that the Bible is the Word of God. And as the Word of God, we have to trust everything in it is going to come to pass. And that means that there is a judgment day coming. It means there's a time coming that we will stand before God and we will give an answer according to the words that are written in that book, John 12, 48. And so maybe you're here today and you haven't conformed to the Bible. You haven't believed and submitted yourself to it. You need to understand that the day is coming and you've got to be prepared. The way you do that is by obeying the gospel. Hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Maybe this morning you want to do that. We are ready to assist you. Maybe this morning as a Christian you desire the prayers of your brethren on your behalf because of public sin in your life that you want to make right. This morning, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.